0: Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the EIU Digital Economy Podcast. In this series, we're examining the impact of digitization on the global economy. The series is sponsored by DXE Technology, an independent IT services company serving over 6,000 clients across 70 countries. We thank them for their support. This month, we're looking at the lifeblood of the global economy finance and financial services. The finance sector has had to contend with digitization for longer and more intensively than most. The scale and complexity of today's financial markets would be unthinkable without computerization, and competing in the financial services industry relies in large part upon the effective use of technology. The industry also demonstrates that digital disruption is seemingly never ending. Having survived successive waves of digitization, from the early days of computerization to the online banking revolution, financial services firms find themselves yet again at the sharp end of digital innovation. A new generation of fintechs is threatening to lure their customers away while cryptocurrencies call some of our financial systems core assumptions into question. To understand the impact of this current wave of innovation on the financial services industry, I spoke to two executives who are helping their respective organizations capitalize on it. Greg Baxter, Chief Digital Officer at US insurance company MetLife, and Tejal Modi, Head of Business Development for Rabobank's Wholesale Banking Division. In our discussion, Greg and Tejal explained how their companies are integrating digital technologies such as AI into their operations, how they manage innovation, and where they see the finance sector evolving in the near future. I started by asking Greg, what does digitization meant for the insurance industry? What has it meant for the concept of insurance as a whole? Well, Pete, digital is
1: fundamentally changing every industry, and clearly, insurance is no different. It's truly a historical discontinuity. And we see it as being driven by what we call three mega trends. And the first of those is around changing customer expectations and demographics. Customers have far greater choice and control, and there's a real shift of power from corporations to consumers. And what that means is that you need to raise the performance bar. There's a saying that, you know, your last best experience anywhere is your next expected experience everywhere. And so companies need to lift up to that level. And it's as true in insurance as in any other industry. The second uh, big trend that we're seeing is around this uh, growth of exponential and intelligent technology and it changes the art of what's possible and in effect we're really able to start to instrument life and once we start to embed this intelligence all around us into the assets we have into the things and decisions that we make even into ourselves you get real insight into Uh, what causes uh, accidents or risks, and how to predict them. And once you get into that space, you can actually start to think about how would you intervene to prevent them. And that's truly transformative for the insurance industry to move from payout and protection to true prevention and recovery. And then the third major trend is around this emergence of new business models and shifting industry dynamics. I think traditionally, companies have uh, created and captured value in vertical products That value is really now being created in horizontal customer journeys and in horizontal platforms that brings uh, different parties together. So it's those three trends that I think are changing what's expected from an insurance company, what's possible for them to deliver and how they're going to create and capture value.
0: Great, thanks Greg. So so those technology drivers shaping insurance as a whole, uh, how do they translate to MetLife as an organization? What does it mean for your company in business terms? And how has the, the business strategy responded to digitization?
1: Yeah, so we, you know, our, our business strategy has put digital uh, at the core of the strategy. Our corporate, corporate strategy has it sitting right at the center of it. And it's embedded into everything that the businesses now need to do. And the digital strategy itself is focused on driving value and growth, through a focus on customers' world-class capabilities and business transformation. And if you unpack that just for a moment, this idea of driving value is about doing the things we do today better or more efficiently and driving uh, greater efficiency, optimization, customer centricity, single customer view, and truly understanding our customer and being the most effective and efficient at the uh, services we provide. But delivering growth requires us to actually think about what the business model of tomorrow looks like. Um, and that's not only about disrupting ourselves, but looking at how we would disrupt the entire industry. And so we look at this in a, a series of, of horizons or a portfolio because attacking it all is a huge task for any of our, our businesses and for the organisation.
0: You mentioned disrupting the organisation then. Can you, can you give our listeners a, a bit of an idea of what that means in, in practical terms for MetLife? What is the source of disruption within the organisation and, and what impact is it having?
1: Yeah. So um, our approach to uh, to driving disruption is is as part of a, a a robust and integrated innovation ecosystem where we look at uh, creating ideas from external partners uh, and ourselves, and then we have built out an accelerator where we build out those ideas, test them through to minimum viable product, and then look to scale them or implement them. And the reason we break it into those phases is to to make sure that we're capturing as broad an array of ideas as possible. And then we're not trying to prematurely scale those ideas. We, we take the, the best of the ideas, we incubate them, and then we look to implement. And to bring it, bring it to life, uh, if we look at how we've done uh, underwriting in the past as, as an industry, uh, life underwriting, a lot of that in, uh, requires invasive uh, testing once you become a customer or, or you apply to become a customer. And uh, our, our goal is to try and minimize the amount of invasive testing to make it more streamlined and ultimately to make it more of an advisory process where we can help people live uh, better and safer lives. And so we're actually uh, deploying um, an AI engine that looks at all of the outcomes that, that that happen in our industry that we have, look at our internal data, and start to work out how would we predict those outcomes and how do we understand those risks. And then we bring in external data to to uh, further improve our prediction of those outcomes, and then look to to, to advise people on how to live uh, better, safer, more fulfilling lives, whether or not that, that's uh, in your car, in your home or in your personal life.
0: Great. That's fascinating. And I'll, I'll come back to your use of AI insurance later on. Uh, Tejal, uh, do the macro digitization trends that Greg mentioned there, do they, uh, are they familiar? Are they similar to what Rubber Bank and other banks are encountering?
2: Yeah, um, I'll just start off by saying that uh, the views that I'll be expressing are, of course, my own and, and not those of, of Rabobank uh, necessarily. Um, but absolutely, you know, I think what Greg discussed with respect to the the changes we see in every industry um, exist between insurance and banking as well. Um, you know we t- he talked about customers uh, and their expectations, as well as sort of this idea of intelligence. and And I think in both of those areas, uh, we see those as being very transformative uh, to our business. Um, I think there's also something really interesting around data and and kind of increasingly recognizing uh, the value of data as an asset, you know and 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 how we can use data essentially to not just drive our business, but innovate new products uh, for our clients. And an interesting example um, I'd like to share is, you know, Rabobank is the preeminent bank to the food and agribusiness sector around the world. When we think about financing agriculture, there are a lot of really interesting applications that we're seeing take hold with respect to data on the farm, Um, you know, whether it's through an an Internet of Things and, and sensors or just much better predictive ability around yield. And could some of this data in the future Help us with our underwriting, um, and I think there are some really interesting confluences of how data is transforming other industries. Let's say, like agriculture, um, that allow a, a, you know a service provider to that industry to perhaps innovate and and develop new products um, that offer something differentiated to our clients. So I think that's quite interesting. This whole issue of data.
0: Sure. How would you say that? How would you characterize the response by the banking sector to these trends so far? Or do you think that they have uh, kept pace? Do you think um, they need to accelerate?
2: I think that I think we all need to accelerate. You know, the the world is changing very quickly, and I think as you know, especially as a large global organization, as many of us are, um, there are uh, you know there are challenges to adopting things very quickly at times. One thing I wanted to add on this question was, if you look at the whole ecosystem in which we operate. You know, it's, it's quite interesting, I think, over the last few years, uh, you know, in a heavily regulated industry, which, you know, financial services is, and particularly banking, um, what has been the response of the regulators as well? And, you know, you look at regulatory authorities um, that are relevant in our business, such as the Financial Industry Regulation Authority, which is known as FINRA uh, on the market side, or the CFTC and their own investments in, you know, innovation outreach programs and labs so that the regulators themselves can also sort of really understand and play an early role in, in shaping the rules of the game uh, around innovation and digitization. And I think that that's, that's a promising and, and interesting development um, and, and one that I think, again, just reflects the quick pace of change and the fact that all actors in the ecosystem really want to, to um, you know, to sort of be on point.
0: So I'm interested in how you both, as executives, uh, try and affect the changes that uh, you've been describing within your organisations. Uh, Greg, you joined uh, MetLife in July of 2017, so a little over a, a year as we're recording today. What was your game plan when you arrived at the organisation, and and how has it panned out since then?
1: Yeah, yeah. Having joined a year ago in you know such a large institution and organisation. And what you're really striving to do is help that organization transform uh, itself to be relevant in a digital world. And one of the most important things I've learned not only here but across my career is that true transformative change doesn't come from a central mandate or or control or assets. It actually comes by building a, a compelling and unifying vision and then mobilizing people around that belief and that purpose across the organization. And that actually requires uh, partnership, collaboration, participation from across the organization. And so as as a head of digital with that context, I see my role far more as a change agent, um, working partnership across the organization, and also working with the organization to find those exemplar projects that start to create belief uh, amongst the early adopters and then, and then start to, to, to bring other people along with that.
0: You know, we often associate digitization with, with new and young startups, but MetLife is a 150-year-old organization. What's it like being the chief digital officer in, a, in a, um, an organization with a long legacy like that?
1: Yeah, uh, MetLife is uh, only one of a handful of companies that has um, been around for 150 years, and uh, it's an honour to serve a company that has uh, built that sort of a history. That has what I would call a noble purpose, which is to to help people live longer, safer, and healthier lives, um, and and to protect their assets. And we've built up, you know, huge, huge uh, resources of of uh, of assets, of people, of capital, of established businesses. So it's a phenomenal platform on which you stand. But when you stand there, the challenge is that you need to look forward as well. And so part of it is uh, helping the organization learn how to be both an operator of an existing business, um, a, a global business, and also a creator of a future business. And that's uh, that's a phenomenal opportunity. We've got great assets by which we can leverage, but it's also you know the challenge of of industrial companies to learn to innovate. But reciprocally, if you think of uh, innovative companies, which are far more agile and faster, they have a similar existential challenge, which is how do you industrialize? How do you build scale out? And the the winners are not going to be one camp or the other. They're going to be those companies that are able to. Learn to innovate. Industrial companies that learn to innovate in line with what the customer and the markets need, and then the innovative companies that learn to uh, industrialize and scale to serve a much broader base than than a small target of customers that fit into their business model.
0: That's great, Uh, Tejal. You've been involved in a number of innovation initiatives. So, what do you think is the key to? instilling innovation in financial services organizations that can often be perceived at least as uh, quite conservative.
2: Yeah, I think that, um, you know, it's true. There are quite a lot of uh, innovation initiatives that that we are undertaking at the bank. Um, and interestingly, because we do serve the food and agribusiness sector, many of those innovation initiatives are actually within agriculture and food. And so there's an interesting cross-pollination when you look across industries, and you can see examples of how, you know, in the example I gave earlier, uh, data proliferation and, and sort of, you know, sort of value that's driving change in one industry can be applied to another. And so I think that we, we have these innovation platforms really serving both financial services and food and ag. We actually have an accelerator out in California that's focused on food and agriculture, interestingly enough, even though we are a bank. Um, and that's an example of a platform within which we, quite, we, we actually are you know, get to stay quite current and, and really sort of in the middle of that ecosystem, which is that of our clients. On the financial side, we have many external partnerships as well. Uh, We work with accelerators. We're very much interested in exploration and sort of really understanding what is emerging. Uh, In many cases, um, it's really sort of in an open innovation sort of environment that I think that as an institution that is quite large and, and, you know, in many cases operates potentially still traditionally in some respects, you know, we need to sort of... um, be exposed and almost probably collide with interesting things that are going on, you know, so that we can then uh, develop a, a sense of how we how we need to react. So it's very much, I think, an external. You know, we need to be um, not inward, and we need to be engaging with with various other actors in our industry and in other industries.
1: Tejal, I think that's a it's a key point. This whole idea that you know traditionally we've focused uh, in, in financial services on products. And the intersection between our company and our product and our consumers. And yet our consumers live in such a a broader world than the one where we interact with them. And if you want to serve customers, you actually need to start to understand the broader environment and the context in which they collectively and individually operate. And then start to position your products to help them achieve those outcomes, as opposed to just optimising the product. So I think this external orientation is a really critical point.
0: And how do you go about, uh, and this is, I guess, a question to both of you, how do you, how do you go about getting that insight? Because by one degree, um, uh, digitization of, offers, uh, you know, great oceans of data that you can analyze and detect and understand customer behavior through. But at the same time, uh, I can understand the argument that in order to really understand your customers' lives requires a bit more of a, a sort of intuitive empathy with those customers that perhaps might have not emerge from data. I don't know if either of you have any have any views on that.
2: I think that's a really uh, good point. You know, when we when we think about the adoption of technology, again, we're back in the human realm. Um, and I think that 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 really is sort of the challenge and the opportunity is for us to really navigate um, what I think about as sort of a, a seam that exists between um human judgment, um you know the way we've done things in the past, and potentially the opportunity to do things in a different and better way with technology. and how do we how do we navigate that? So I think that while data uh, can offer us insights, um, it very quickly returns back to the human realm with respect to you know what is our objective, what are we seeking to do? And if we're seeking to change behaviors because of data, again, you know how can we um, have a better understanding uh, of the human response uh, so that we can um, you know ultimately innovate? So it's it's a really interesting uh, challenge there.
1: Yeah, I think it's you know there's a couple of examples that I found interesting at MedLife. We've introduced a technology to help. Our agents, uh, when they're talking to uh, customers uh, on on the phone, to to give them uh, emotive prompts as to whether or not they're um, talking too fast, whether or not they should escalate something, whether or not they're talking over, if the pace is uh, right, if there's long pauses, um, whether or not they should be trying to speed the process up or offering callbacks, etc. And the question was, you know, how, how do you uh, instill empathy into call center agents? The reality is that people naturally have empathy. And what we need to do is unleash that. And what technology can do well positioned is help, help remind our agents uh, that we do value empathy, that we are helping develop them in that space and reminding them that there's metrics well beyond just uh, throughput and transactions. And so I think using technology to help augment the uh, human performance is critical, and I think when you know in an insurance environment, the moments of truth that really matter are, are phenomenally impactful and emotive moments for our consumers, um, points of uh, of illness, uh, disease, of accident, etc., and that requires somebody to be there to help you through that at at an emotive level.
0: So, so Greg, you mentioned earlier that um, the, your organisation is increasingly using AI in the um assessment of risk uh, and that's a good example of something an assessment that would traditionally perhaps be associated with a, a human employee so it's an example perhaps of how the role of your human employees is is changing and uh, what I'm hearing from both of you now is that there's certainly a, a greater role for for empathy and intuition is that right it, and does that change what you're looking for in the, in the ideal employee within your organizations
1: I think it does. I think there's a few things. If you think about automation and deploying that, what that is really trying to do is free up our most important asset to focus on our most important objective. And that's freeing up our employees to focus on our customers and delivering differentiated services when they need them.
2: Yeah. I mean, if I can add to that, I think even to carry on from there, if we think about um, the sheer amount of time um, and resource that's spent even in sort of the, the middle or back office in a banking environment, where a lot of that may not immediately be customer facing. But of course, those actions and activities translate ultimately into customer experience and the bank's own, of course, risk management, uh, you know, and required processes. You know, the automation there, again, There, there's a lot of application, um, you know, around Automating what might have been manual or what might have been paper-based, you know, extracting data from paper-based documents, you know, into a digital and more usable format. So there are a lot of sort of easy wins and low-hanging fruit. But again, there are judgments and decisions being made in those back-office processes, and I think this is another area where we see a lot of potential to not only make an employee's life more efficient, but really, as Greg mentioned, um, you know really kind of free up time so that the most valuable asset that we have is, you know, as our people, you know, is our people, that that they can spend that time on that incremental judgment and not on um, some of the more rote activities.
1: And Pete, there's also that question about what sort of uh, talent do you need and, and where do you get that talent from? And I think whilst every organization needs to look externally to bring fresh talent in, we also have a responsibility and obligation to provide the opportunities for our own uh, existing uh, staff to develop, to give them the, um, the, the uh, competencies and skills that they need, to give them the opportunities to develop into those new roles. And we're rolling out uh, a digital academy, which you know takes people through understanding, through to engaging, through to mastering different technologies that they're going to need in the future uh, and making sure that they're, they're ready for what the future of work will look
0: like. So we talked a little bit about the impact of digitization on current employees. Um, but do you think that digitization is changing the perception of uh, financial services organizations in the industry among potential employees?
2: Yeah, I think absolutely. I think there's a parallel to consumers. Um, you, know, I, you know, in the way that our lives have transformed, you know, as we talked about earlier, I think employees are expecting Those types of interactions and that sort of enablement the technology offers in the workplace. Um, And this is something that, again, I think is happening very quickly. So whether we're talking about virtual working environments or even tools, AI tools that can help individuals internally source information around sort of structured data, unstructured data so that they can do their jobs better and quicker without relying on perhaps what would have been earlier, you know, a, another human interaction and one that would have taken much longer. So I think there are expectations that, you know, as we are evolving and accelerating the pace of innovation externally in, in, in customer-facing contexts, how can we equip our employees to be more effective and efficient uh, and offer them uh, the same sort of technology enablement?
1: I, I agree. I think that in, increasingly people are looking for that purpose and that impact. And as an organization you need to give them those opportunities uh and free them up from the um, the things that don't really have the frontline impact that you want uh that that employees want to have and i think that you know agile is a word that's maybe a little bit overused but this idea of distributed and empowered teams uh, of a more organic uh, structure where teams can come together and form around a customer issue or opportunity and build something out at much faster speed and start to see what the clients say and feel a connection between what they're producing and what impact it's having on people's lives. And I think that's going to be the thing that motivates people. That's going to be what drives retention of employees.
0: So, switching back to technology for a moment, um, it wouldn't uh, a discussion of digitization wouldn't be complete with some examination of emerging technologies. Greg, from your perspective, what do you think will be the most disruptive uh, technologies in the insurance space in the coming years?
1: Great question, Pete. I, I mean, one of our, our our biggest focus is on data analytics, um specifically as it relates to AI. And we think of AI in two broad categories. One is uh, perceptive technologies and the other is cognitive technologies. And perceptive technologies just allow us to digitize the external world or capture the external world as we would perceive it. And once we digitize those signals, we can then feed them into our automation systems, into our analytics. And those technologies are already mature and we're getting significant value out of them. So whether or not that's... uh, Understanding uh, natural language conversations in our IVR or in our call centres, whether or not it's uh, understanding handwritten documents or using drones to to scan uh, assets that we own or um, damage after after incidents, or whether or not it's uh, using monitors to understand the acceleration or deceleration of a car, all of those technologies. Uh, and now feeding data back into our organization allowing us to be far more effective and efficient in auto adjudication of uh, claims of uh, far faster pricing uh, for customers and being able to serve them in their environment the second one uh, cognitive technologies I think is still one that uh, that is building out and that's the ability to take all of that data and start to make judgmental decisions um, far beyond just rules-based decisions and once, uh, once we start to get into that space, it's where large corporations have a, a significant advantage, I think, because they have a history of data and outcomes. And so machines are able to learn what, what data predicts what outcome. And in insurance, that means we get a far better understanding of the causes of risks uh, and the causes of those causes. And over time, that allows us to start to advise people on how to change their behavior or their assets or intervene in a way that would uh, reduce those outcomes and car driving is a great example with telematics.
0: Tejal, what do you think are the biggest technologies for banking in the in the forthcoming era?
2: Yeah, I mean I think absolutely AI uh, and I think specifically though if we if we do look at the corporate institutional context from which I hail we're talking about very large facilities, you know, very large financial transactions, in many cases that are that involve multiple actors. And so, you know, a natural area of exploration in our space and our competitive realm is blockchain because, If we take an example such as trade and commodities finance, which is a substantial business for Rabobank, this is basically the movement of core commodities around the world, the sale and purchase of these commodities. They could be agricultural commodities, metals, you name it, you know, that sort of thing. Um, This is a a very uh, complicated business with multiple actors and points of verification across steps um, from sort of, you know, storage to shipping to acceptance receipt. And blockchain uh, offers a very interesting platform uh, that could completely transform how this business is conducted around the world. We've run a proof of concept in Australia, which is one of our markets, with a company called AgriDigital, where we facilitated a commodity sales in this proof of concept um, using a a common product called a SIP, um, you know, on the blockchain um, and I think you know that, that again, it allows us to, to sort of test the waters, but then really start thinking about how we could see a commercial opportunity here. Um, we also recently announced um, joining a consortium called Comgo, which is an open platform uh, in trading commodities finance that fourteen other financial institutions have joined. And so this is a very real stake Robert Bank is taking um, in in exploring you know the use of blockchain, knowing that that. Um, that it's gonna change quite a lot in the financial services industry. It's gonna take some time, but there are some applications that we see that, that are a bit, uh, a bit earlier on the horizon. My
0: last question is really the big question. Where is this leading? So where do you think, um, as a result of uh, digitization, how will customers, whether they are businesses or consumers, how will they be interacting with financial services organizations? How will they be consuming financial services? And what does that mean for your industry and your respective organizations? I'd like to start with Greg.
1: Yeah look I think that the, the, the first the, when you ask the question of how will, how will we engage customers in 10 to 15 years one is rather hard to predict but what I do know is it will be on their terms and I think that's the first thing we need to think about what are the journeys and the experiences and the services that people will expect and that's going to require a deep level of customization towards their context, and that's something we've been talking about a little, for a little while. I think the second one uh, is that it'll be far more outcome-based, and I think that forces companies to ask, why do people buy or need your product, uh, and what is the outcome that they want, not the product that they're trying to buy at that point in time? And in an insurance space, uh, it's really about protecting assets, lives, and people that, that you care about. And with these new technologies and the ability to embed intelligence everywhere, we should be able to improve our understanding of the the causes of risk and the recovery from the sorts of illnesses or accidents that you may have and help mitigate, intervene or accelerate towards a positive outcome in that situation. Same question
0: again for you, Tejal. Where do you see this going?
2: Yeah, I really like what Greg said about um, outcomes versus products. You know, I think, again, if we take it back to a corporate context, for example… Um, increasingly, uh, we see ourselves as aligning our service model with the strategies of our institutions, of the institutions that we serve. You know, so as opposed to thinking about products and specific services um, that we offer, um, that 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 many organizations could offer, we're focused on, and we think our clients will expect from us, sort of a much more symbiotic relationship oriented. Um sort of approach, you know, where we are in many cases anticipating um, their needs. We are offering um, advice, uh, you know and and suggestions and help and counsel, um, you know, at various points throughout the relationship life cycle in ways that are valuable to our clients and and that is enabled uh, because of the technologies that are available to us. So I think it really much is around how do we cement this relationship, and I think our clients will expect more of that. So again, interestingly, you know, with technology, we potentially could become more human and more empathetic and more understanding of each other. Um, and, I, and I think that's, that's the future.
0: Greg, Tejal, thank you both very much for joining us.
2: Thanks, Pete.
0: Thanks, Pete. That concludes the second episode of the EIU Digital Economy podcast. Tune in next month, when we'll be discussing the implications of digitization for work and management. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Thanks again to our sponsors DXC, an independent IT services company that specializes in digital transformation. And thank you for listening.